0: Welcome to the Tax Girl podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips Erb, Tax Girl. I'm a tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers and tax practitioners like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. PwC recently announced it's allowing its 40,000 client facing employees to work remote from anywhere in the US. Joining companies like Facebook and Allstate, more employers are shifting to permanently remote models to attract and retain top talent. But what does this actually mean? Today, I've asked Nishant Mittal to the show to talk about what work from anywhere will really mean for employers and employees. Nishant is the SVP and GM of Topia's business travel solution, responsible for strategy and growth. Nishant joined Topia as part of his acquisition of Maneo, a tech company he co-founded and led. Prior to founding Maneo, Nishant was a vice president at General Atlantic, where he led the financial services sector in India and was subsequently a part of the U.S. tech team. Before General Atlantic, He worked in McKinsey & Company's New Jersey office, advising Fortune 500 companies in the pharma industry. Nishan is a published author with publications in machine learning and image processing and leading peer-reviewed journals. He has a BS in computer engineering, an MS in biomedical engineering, and an MBA from Stanford's Graduate School of Business. Thank you so much for being on the show today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So I'm really excited about this topic because it is something that a lot of people are talking about. We're talking about it at my company. Um, I know that a lot of tax professionals are talking about it. And we're seeing it in the workplace generally, this idea of work from anywhere, remote work, flex work. There's lots of different models. So why don't just right out of the gate, you tell us what you think this kind of transition means for working generally. Like what, what Kind of what is the significant change that we can expect? And then we'll kind of drill down into some of the details.
1: Absolutely. This is obviously an evolving topic, one that is very strategic, I think, for companies. And I'll talk about that a little bit. But needless to say that the last 18 months have upended a lot of the different models that we have known for a really long time. A number of structural changes have happened. And... One of the big ones is just the nature of how we will do work. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, at, at Topia, we ran a survey across 1,000-plus companies, and we found that 91% of employees are expecting to have flexibility to work from wherever it is that I want to work. That's a huge number. It is a huge number. It is a huge number, right? And interestingly, 86% of employers are expecting that they will have to accommodate some form of remote or hybrid work arrangement. So the jury is really out there as to how this will eventually evolve, what model will eventually end up taking hold. Mm-hmm. And then there's probably going to be a whole spectrum of perspectives that are out there, likely outcomes that are out there. So you just talked about PwC going out and saying, hey, employees can now just you know work from home or work from anywhere that they want. Forever. And there are many companies who've said that. And on the other hand, you have companies who are saying, hey, we want employees back in the office because that is what we need for peak productivity. And then there's everything in the middle. Right. So what it will evolve to be, I think is going to be very interesting.
0: Yeah. And I'm actually kind of fascinated by this idea. Um, you mentioned forever, right? So it's interesting to me because I've owned a business and I'm a lawyer, which means my answer to everything is always it depends. And it kind of scares me, this idea that anybody could promise anything forever. Do you think this is something that's going to stick? Because you just mentioned, there's a, and we're going to talk about it, but there's a lot of questions that this kind of working environment brings with it, right? And so do you think it's a fair thing to say that this could last forever for a company to make that promise? Or do you think
1: that this is something that could be dialed back? I think that's a very interesting question. I think irrespective of what employers think or may want to do, I think the reality of this is that this is an employee market, right? So we've been reading and we've been hearing and we've been experiencing this, that uh, the number of employees who are quitting their jobs at an unprecedented rate. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of this really is about how do you retain and attract good talent? Because it is becoming harder than ever. And so this has become a strategic issue for companies whereas just the ability to be able to attract and retain talent where companies are looking for an edge and if you were to believe most leaders will say that people are the most important asset that we have but as i just said like 91% of people are expecting flexibility to work from home and so i think a lot of these decisions are being made at a he- very high levels i don't know how many of these in how many of these conversations the board or the executive team is really thinking about what is the day-to-day implication of that mm-hmm. from an operational perspective, from a compliance perspective. I think a lot of that is still in flux. And number of companies I talk to, that's where I see, you know, the HR departments and the tax departments and the mobility departments really scratching their heads and trying to figure out like, okay, how will we actually make this work?
0: Right, and this is something I'll just go ahead and tell. And and people who know me and listen to the show know that I've been remote for eons. Like I've, it's something that I do a lot of commuting when I was with Forbes. I was on the train a lot to New Jersey and New York and DC as well. But I mostly worked from home, so it's interesting to for me to watch this shift because a lot of people in my industry, especially people who are writers and podcasters, have been working remotely for a while. But for our more I'm using air quotes, but mainstream employees, this is something that's new. So, you know, as I watch this shift, I wonder, like, what kinds of concerns do employers have about shifting to a more remote workforce?
1: Yeah. So the number of implication of folks who are, so actually, I want to take one step back here. When you say remote work, I think remote work is one of the many kinds of work models that are likely to evolve. Okay. So. On one hand, you have remote work, which basically means, hey, you can work remotely from anywhere that you want. There are various shades of hybrid work. I'm yes. sure you've heard of that, mm-hmm. right? Which is not necessarily remote work. We want you to be in the office maybe one day, two days, three days a week, and then you know the rest of the days work from home. And then the far side of the spectrum is, hey, we want everybody in the office all the time, right? So, so this is a whole spectrum. And within that, right, there are various shades of gray. So when I talk to companies, there are companies saying, hey, Look, you can work a hybrid or you can work remote, but you cannot work from anywhere that you want to work from. Okay. There we have designated certain jurisdictions that you can work out of, right? So you have to be, for example, one variation of that is you have to be within commuting distance so that you can be back in the office a few days. Mm-hmm. There are variations of it say, hey, you can work from only certain jurisdictions where we already have a presence. Right. Or where you know where we may already have a legal entity, uh, there are other variations in which you know you can only work from wherever you want, but within the country, not outside the country. So I think there are various versions of that, and I think different companies, different folks will have different strokes. I think different companies will end up in a different place just based on on their belief. So I didn't mean to not answer your question, but I just wanted to put it out there that there are a number of models that are in play a lot of companies, a lot of folks thinking through where exactly do they want to end up based on their culture and what their employees want.
0: Sure. And, and one of the things that you'd raised when you were talking through that is this idea of jurisdiction. And on the tax side, that is something that I think employees think about maybe for themselves, but they don't think about what that means for their employers. And you, as you mentioned, you know, Sometimes it makes sense to say, if we already have a presence in North Carolina, then sure, you could be in North Carolina. But if we don't have a presence in Georgia, then maybe we don't want you in Georgia. And there are some real reasons, including tax reasons, why employers may not want employees all
1: over the country or all over the world. Absolutely. Because tax departments have spent all this time having certain assumptions that they have made in determining their tax structures, which basically optimize their global effective tax rate. Mm-hmm. And now, as soon as you have people who are performing work in other jurisdictions, you can start to create a number of different types of issues, like permanent establishment, that will require very close monitoring, if not potentially needs an evolution of how we've thought about tax structuring. And so, yes, the implications of the, this is far and wide ranging. And, uh, let me let me talk to you about it from two perspectives. okay The first perspective I want to take is the employee perspective and it was interesting to me your comment that potentially employees understand what it means for them. and I actually cha- I would actually challenge that. In my experience and I speak to a number of companies and employees, it is actually not clear that employees understand what the implication is of working from a different jurisdiction. In fact, survey that I was mentioning earlier where we thousand plus companies, We found out that 61% of employees actually understood what it means to work from a different tax jurisdiction. So you do have a massive gap of under uh, just understanding, even within the employee base, of what it can mean to work from different different places. So let me take an example because I always find it very useful, you know, you think about it from a specific example. So, you know, let's say, you know, in the middle of pandemic last year in April 2020. I lived in an apartment in New York City, and I decided that, hey, New York City apartment's not big enough for me and my kids, and I moved down to Hilton Head in South Carolina. I move in April, so I'll spend six, six or more months uh, in South Carolina, and so obviously I am no longer resident of New York, and I am now a South Carolina resident, and so I now get to pay 6% South Carolina tax versus the 13% New York City tax, New York State and City tax that I used to pay. Right?
0: In theory, because again, thinking like a lawyer, I'm thinking of all the reasons why that might not work, but go on. I want to hear your example.
1: So even in theory, that is wrong because, so let's just assume. So first question is, when I decided to leave New York City and go to South Carolina, am I actually moving there for good? Am I actually going to change my domicile, Mm -hmm. my residency from New York to South Carolina? because it is not just sufficient for me to leave New York. I have to land in South Carolina, and I have to be able to unequivocally show that my life, my entire life has moved to South Carolina. Right. Imagine like a few years down the line, and I don't know what will happen in 2022, 2023, 2024, but a few years pass by and I decide, look, you know, this pandemic thing is now in the rear view mirror. I'm now going to be back in New York because my company is still up there and look, you know, a lot of people are coming back to the office. It's painful to do two days a week in the office, you know, every week from Hilton Ed. So I'm just going to move back to New York. Now, as you know, probably better than I do, when you get tax audits, they typically tend to happen two, three, four years after you filed your tax done. So that audit is not likely going to come from New York till 2023, maybe 2024. If by that time you have moved back to New York, what has ended up happening? New York's going to say, "Well, you told me that you have moved to South Carolina, Lockstock Barrel, but here, here you are back in New York.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: for all that tax that you did not pay me in 2020 and 2021, 2022, here is your bill. Not only do you owe me that tax, you also owe me huge penalties and interest. Right. Three years later, in 2023, you try and go back to South Carolina and say, "Well, oops, I messed up. As actually a New York resident, I should have never really paid you." South Carolina taxes on my global income, maybe on my wages for the time that I was down in South Carolina, but not on everything. And so I'd like a refund, please. And South Carolina will say, sorry, the statute has expired. Mm -hmm. So I am seeing a lot of that when I talk to folks where they think that they can leave a certain tax jurisdiction, they can go somewhere else, be there for a few years, not pay taxes like in New York, and then come back and everything will be fine. We would have saved a bunch of taxes. I think those folks are in for a huge surprise.
0: Right. I think one of the things that also complicates that is, and you kind of alluded to this, but states also have different understandings of what it means to be a resident for tax purposes. And so uh, you could be a resident for tax purposes in South Carolina and still be a resident somewhere else, possibly for part of the year. Some states have part-year residency, some do not. Like, There's a lot of differences between the states. And I think that's particularly confusing for taxpayers.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, so Yes. I think uh, you know, it's not a given that employees understand what is the implication of them asking their employers to necessarily work across the border. And you know, here we just took an example of the US. You start to think about people who now want to go live from other countries. As you know, there are only a handful of countries that have said, hey, it's okay to have you know, a nomad visa where you can work out of our country and not have significant implications. But really, there can be some very, very substantial implications as it relates to, you know, obviously taxes, but also immigration, social security. There's all sorts of stuff that I don't think employees are really thinking through or don't even have the mechanism to be able to think through, really.
0: Sure. And just to clarify, when I was talking about employees understanding the tax consequences, I was thinking about it more from like a me-centric perspective. That when they're making the switch, like I would like to live in South Carolina or North Carolina, they may know that there might be an impact to them. Perhaps they don't understand the full impact, but they may know that there might be an impact, but they're not thinking about the idea that it could also impact their employer. I think that the distinction is that, again, employees tend to think of kind of me-centric, right? Like correct. what's happening if, if I move, it's just me going to North Carolina. They're not thinking, oops, maybe I'm accidentally dragging my employer into a situation where they now have a presence. And I think that's because we have, uh, you know, a lot of folks don't remember the old, you had to have a brick and mortar rules and they don't understand that, you know, in a post Wayfair world, we're thinking about nexus in different ways. I think it can be confusing for employees for sure. So I totally agree with you in that regard. I just think sometimes employees don't think about what this means for companies.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the employer piece of this is very very complicated as i said before there's a lot of tax planning that you know practitioners have done you know over many years and i think this fundamentally challenges a lot of those assumptions or at least those assumptions need to be go back and looked at and monitored to say whether those assumptions still hold uh, and will continue to hold and how do we potentially evolve those and those issues become are very complicated Here in the US. And then obviously, when you start to talk about outside the US, they become even more complicated because the world is just from a tax perspective, there's so much going on. And unfortunately, as rapidly as this whole remote work or hybrid work wave has evolved, unfortunately, regulation is not keeping up with it, right? So last year, we saw a bunch of states in the US and a handful of countries in, in the world who actually. Put out explicit guidance for tax professionals to say, okay, you know, for this period of time, if you have employees who are working out of our jurisdiction, you know, we are not going to count that towards nexus. Right. But interestingly, you know, a lot of those expired last year, and Mm -hmm. some jurisdictions came out and said we are going to renew them. Some came out and said we are not going to renew them. But majority of them actually stayed silent on the issue. So if you think about it from a tax practitioner's point of view. What do you take away? You take away the fact uh, that we are still, you know, kind of in a pandemic even now, and are those still in play? Are those not in play? And so there is not clarity on that on those issues, let alone on issues around the world, just like wayfair changed the way we think about brick and mortar versus online. This is going to be the new way that people are likely going to work, and so regulations are not keeping up with you know this evolution of people wanting to work from anywhere.
0: Right, and Kind of when you start talking about evolution and we think about things that are expiring, my head automatically goes to home office deduction, which, as you know, is not in play right now for employees, only for independent contractors, small business owners, someone who files a Schedule C, but not for W-2 employees. Assuming that that doesn't change, and again, it should go away 2025 if, if it is allowed to sunset back, but assuming it doesn't. Do you think that employers will think about those things in addition to some of these other tax changes in the way that it compensates employees? Because I know that the funny thing about the home office deduction is that it's actually not that big for most people. It's actually not that substantial, but people feel like it is because they were used to it, right? And so now they can't claim it and they feel cheated in some way. And then maybe they're paying taxes that they weren't expecting. Maybe they have other expenses like better internet that they're not expecting. Do you think that these unexpected expenses for employees are going to lead to a change in compensation? Or do you think that since you mentioned that uh, there's still some hybrid models out there, there are still people who want to have employees in the offices, those companies are still paying that overhead for those offices, right? So this is an extra Expense, and I know that you mentioned that we're looking at a, you know it's kind of an employee-based market right now. That there's a lot of choice, but do you think that compensation is going to change? And do you think that's going to be hard for employers?
1: Really good question. There are so many factors that are playing into it, right? Both from the perspective of lowering costs for for corporations. So if you mm-hmm. think about real estate after payroll, real estate is typically the second largest cost for most employers. -hmm. And so as they think about a remote hybrid work in the future, the footprint that they require is, you know, or should be smaller than what they have in the past. So there are definitely, you know, there, there are definitely some cost saving opportunities that are coming out of this. I have in my own conversations, I've spoken to a number of companies that are considering potentially having adjusting compensation for employees based on where they will be working. So if you know you were working out of California obviously the cost of living in california is is much higher and if you are going to move out to a texas or somewhere else there are conversations within companies say hey why would we would we consider adjusting that for cost of living
0: yes i've seen some lively conversations on linkedin about this very thing so yes correct
1: so so there's a lot of debate there's a lot of debate about that right and on the other hand you have you know some of the expenses like you're talking about where You know, now that people are working from home, there are many jurisdictions that actually require you by law, by labor law, you're required to provide them certain, you know, certain infrastructure so that they can actually perform their work from home. There is that piece of it. So I think ultimately, you know, I think different companies will come to different perspective on this. But your question, have I been a part of conversations where companies are saying we need to provide some sort of a stipend to employees? Absolutely, yes. I've absolutely heard of companies not only really providing stipends for equipment and better internet. Typically, what I'm seeing is they're bundling it up to say, hey, we'll give you X hundred dollars per month so that you can have the infrastructure that you need to be able to do these things from home. Interestingly, interestingly, I heard uh, in one of my conversations with a fairly large company last, last week, they're actually going to be giving people food allowance. Oh, Wow. They have like these fancy lunches that they give out at offices. Now that people are not coming to the office, they're actually providing for a meal stipend. That's fascinating. It is fascinating, right? It is fascinating. And what is going to be fascinating is, you know, how many how many folks actually then start to think about, okay, how this is a perk. And as you know, unlike in many parts of the world, give people money for 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 food, that actually becomes taxable now. Yes. So, so it's, it's going to be very interesting to see, you know, how all of these things eventually square off. But yes, I am definitely hearing people saying, um, hey, we're going to give people some allowance for, for equipment and even for, for food.
2: And
0: that is really fascinating when you bring up the food, because I know that, you know, there have been many, many articles written about, especially in the tech world, about trying to attract talent. in, you know, uh, the, the tech companies, the big ones, the Googles, the Facebook, the Apples of the world were very infamous for a bit in terms of the perks that they were providing for employees at their locations so fancy gyms, uh, you know pool tables arcade games you know all of these kinds of things that were intended to keep you at the office with I guess the hope that you'll continue to work if you lose that as a perk you know how do you how do you reshape that and I guess you know food would be one way It will be interesting to see what other kinds of perks are down the road because, you know, how do you compete to keep talent if somebody else is, because it can't just be money, right? Like I know everybody likes money, but we've also talked, we've heard a lot of people in a post-pandemic world talk about corporate culture. How do you establish a corporate culture if you don't have a place to go? I think that's a really interesting conundrum, I think for some companies especially those tech companies that kind of pride themselves on being really adaptive and and offering generous benefits to their employees.
1: Yeah, especially I mean as long as we have the employee market out there. I think we're going to see a lot of a lot of those kinds of accommodations that companies will likely have to make to to both attract as well as retain talent.
0: Right. And one of the things you brought up um, in conversation a few minutes ago, you mentioned labor laws. This is something that I'm also fascinated by. And just as a a side note, my husband is also an attorney, and he works with a lot of companies and a lot of international companies and a lot of international tech companies. And this is something that he's particularly sensitive about, and it's something that pre-pandemic when it came up, people were puzzled by, but now I think we're going to hear a lot more about, but this idea that the laws are not the same in every jurisdiction inside the U.S. and definitely not outside the U.S. Do you think companies are going to be at a point where they're going to have to restrict where you can work or how many times you can change where you work to accommodate labor laws? Because I would think that depending on the size of the company, it could be Difficult to track time, to track where employees are. You know. So, what do you think about first of all the general question of how do you adapt to employees being in places where the laws might be different about how many days of work a week you can work, how many hours you can work, those kinds of things, and then kind of the follow up to that. Do you think that that's going to lead to some kind of employee tracking?
1: It's interesting that you bring that up. So, when we in the survey that I talked about uh, earlier where we polled 1,000 companies, we asked companies, how confident are you that you know where your employees are performing work from? And 93% of HR professionals said they actually know where the majority of their employees are working from. 78% of them were confident that their employees are self-reporting when they are working outside of their default jurisdiction, so if they're working in a different state or a different country right and then when we asked the employees it turned out that only 33% of employees were actually reporting where they were working out of 24% of employees were not reporting anything at all
0: wow
1: so there is a big disconnect between what employers believe as to what the footprint of their workforce looked like mm-hmm. and what it might actually look like and i think that is going to be at the center of any kind of policy decision, process decision, tax planning, that has to be at the center. Because if you do not know what is the footprint of who is working, where are they working from, and what are they doing, then how do you even figure out where you might be creating permanent establishment risks? Exactly. Right? I mean, with the base erosion, profit sharing, the BEPS, OECD BEPS, like Article 7, BE as the core of or transfer pricing. So now suddenly, like all of this planning that has been done, you know, suddenly gets thrown out of the window because you have, potentially you have salespeople or other revenue generating people in jurisdictions that you didn't even know uh, are there. Because I'm not picking up the phone and calling the head of tax every time that I'm, you know, moving, especially if the company said I can work from anywhere, I'm not picking up the phone and calling and telling my tax person that I'm going to be going there. And it's not possible. It's not going to happen. Right. Uh, I think we're going to see a lot of those kinds of issues come into play, and I do think that there is going to be a world in which, you know, if employees are going to have the opportunity or the benefit of being able to work remotely or work hybrid or having flexible work, then they will also have to have the the responsibility of helping the organization understand where does the company need to do compliance.
0: Do you think that's going to solely be the employee's responsibility or do you think that employers will start thinking, you know what, we're going to have you sign in on our VPN all of the time so that we can know where you are? Like, how do you think that plays out longer term?
1: So when I say it's the employee's responsibility, I think, so if you think sort of, you know, if you dial back maybe two or three years, if you told people, hey, we are going to need to know where you are and where are you working from, you know, you'd get a lot of skewed eyebrows. Because the general assumption was that 95% of the people work from, they have been told to work from. Mm-hmm. It's an office that you know that you're working from. And in today's world, that number is going to change to probably 50 to 60% of people who you know are now potentially working from flexibly and working from anywhere. And so I think that is the big change. And so when I say responsibility, I think there is an aspect of, hey, I do not want to be tracked. I don't want to tell employers where I am. And I think that's totally fair. I think there has to be some sort of a balance between, okay, if employers don't know where you're working from, how are they supposed to do the compliance that they are required to do? It's not an optional thing. Right. So I think we'll have to come to to that balance between you have the responsibility to help your employer do the compliance because you are being given that flexibility to be able to, to work from where you choose to work from. And I think, luckily, we are there with the technology where systems can help broker that, where you don't have to give up your privacy. Nobody needs to know that you're sitting at the corner of 15th and 6th. <laughs> but you know, it, it is important for your employer to know that you are in New York performing work in New York. And I think you know, those kinds of systems and processes will likely need to be put in place if companies want to, to stay compliant with different rules in different jurisdictions.
0: And when you talk about staying compliant and crafting your policies so that they make sense for your employees and for the company. We think about the bigger companies that feels a little easier because they're huge and they have those kinds of resources, right? Like they have legal on speed dial, they have a dedicated payroll companies. What do you suggest for smaller companies, mid-sized companies in particular, that may be facing these kinds of Issues and they don't know what to do. Like, do you have resources that you can steer them to? Do you say call your lawyer? Because I do think that you know there's pressure at all sizes, right, of companies. And I think on some level, smaller companies are probably a little better suited to adapt because you know if you only have three people to accompany uh, account for, you might be able to write that process a little or the, those uh, procedures a little better. But if you have, say, Five hundred employees, but you you know you're not an Apple. You don't have that kind of budget. What do you do? Like, do you have suggestions for people in terms of where to seek help or what
1: to think about? I think you're absolutely right. The mid midsize companies, you know, are going to feel very challenged with this because the don't have as big budgets, don't have as big resources, probably don't even have the kinds of folks on the team who can who can help think about it. So. I think number one place to start is with the advisors uh, that you work with. And I think one of the things that I often talk about in many of my conversations is the number of implications of something like this are huge, and they're Mm -hmm. multi-pronged. I think what is most important is to figure out very quickly, how do you not boil the ocean, but get to the handful of topics that account for majority of the risk whether that risk be on the tax side, whether that be on the immigration side, don't have to put processes and policies in place to solve everything day one.
0: Right, you're probably freaking the lawyers out who are listening because that's <laughs> that's what they train us to do, right? Think of everything. But no, I totally agree with you. I think that you you can't solve everything with one handbook.
1: Correct. I mean, the, that's a practical. Right? I mean, if you put it in the context of an of an organization with certain amount of resources, then you cannot solve for everything. Uh, otherwise, this will become the full-time job instead of running the business. right. To me, that is the critical thing is to understand where your people, even for a mid-sized company, just understanding what does the footprint of your people look like. If majority of those people are in the US and they continue to be in the US, then you don't have to think about a lot of the international implications of that. Those can be taken as exceptions. But, you know, and then start to focus in on the US and start to think about, you know, immigration quickly put in cross-cross across immigration because everybody is going to stay here in the U.S. So, you know, and start to, to focus on things that may matter. For example, U.S. payroll withholding, state-to-state withholding has become a really big topic for company. So, you know, you can start to think about, you know, what are those, those things that create maximum risk and start to chip away at those. And that also helps just build the building blocks for future compliance as you get past, you know, a handful of topics, then you pick up the next one, the next one. So that is my that is what I have seen work best. I think it is important. This is a critical enough topic that needs sponsorship from somebody on the executive team. Mm-hmm. This is a very, very multifaceted topic. Uh, this is not just tax. It's not just payroll. It's not just HR. It's not just mobility. It's at the intersection of a number of these different functions. And so being able to designate somebody who's at the executive level who's going to sponsor this because uh, as a company you recognize that this is a strategic issue this is a talent attracting and retaining talent issue and so using that lens to then be able to say what are the who are the different people who, who need to be involved in this and what are the most important topics that we we need to address first
0: i agree and i think you mentioned early at the top of the program that a lot of companies say that their people are the most important things and i think that how companies react to this shift amongst employees will really kind of bear that out probably down the line.
1: Absolutely. One thing I do want to add to this is, you know, obviously we've talked a lot about the compliance implications of people working from different places, but there are also some opportunities. There aren't a ton of them, but there mm-hmm. are definitely some opportunities. So interestingly, over the last year and a half, we've been working with a number of companies who have found opportunities to save taxes so for example you know you'll recognize this because you're an unincorporated business new york city for example has an unincorporated business tax it's got a 4% ubt now the way the new york city ubt works is that new york city allows you to be able to allocate away the receipts that were not generated in new york city so you could have a new york city based employee but if they were working out of Florida, or they were working out of Long Island or Westchester or Pennsylvania, you know, for some period of time, you have the ability to reduce some of those receipts, depending on who that individual is and if they're revenue generating and what their contribution to receipts is. But you have an opportunity to take some of those receipts away and save four percent on that. Similarly, San Francisco has a San Francisco GRT tax, which. Is for corporations as well as for unincorporated businesses, which is calculated based on the work that is being performed inside San Francisco by folks who are employed by an organization. But during pandemic, if you are working out of Napa or or from some other place, then there is an opportunity to save those kinds of taxes. Again, I think obviously the challenges here far outweigh the, the opportunities here. But I would encourage you know, folks to think about, depending on the jurisdiction that they're in, I know that Philly has a tax, LA has a tax. I
0: was going to mention Philly because I'm right outside of Philly and we've heard a lot about Philly and their, their tax this year. But yeah, no, you make a great point. I think that smart employees and smart employers would do well to consult with their tax planners to see what does it matter if I work 10 minutes outside of the city or 10 minutes inside of the city, depending on where they live in what the options are. So yeah, I think there's a lot of planning opportunities out there right now. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I think this has been terrific. It's raised a lot of issues that I think maybe people aren't necessarily thinking about when uh, a lot of them are just thinking, where can I go with where it's warm maybe right now and um, (laughs) where I don't pay um, as much in tax. If folks wanted to find you and you wanted to be found either on social media or the web, where would you send them?
1: Yeah, so folks can uh, follow me on Twitter. My handle is NYSH28, and that's NYSH28. I am also on LinkedIn, Nishant Mittal. And then obviously, you know, we have a ton of resources, a ton of great information on our website, which is topia.com, T O P I A.com.
0: Terrific. And I'll be sure to put those links in the show notes so that people can easily click on them. Thanks again. This was really terrific. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. You can send an email with your feedback to podcast at taxgirl.com. And if you liked it, please share. You can find the audio of each episode at taxgirl.com. You can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite listening app, so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening, because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't have to be.